This is a Sunday message from New Community Church in London. To discover more about New Community, visit newcom.church. I've really enjoyed this series, this short book, only four chapters, but there's just so much in there. It's so rich. And just even watching that video um, of Anna from Ukraine, that just made that situation so much more real for us, didn't it? Hearing an eyewitness account. And one of the things I've loved in the book of Ruth is just how relatable it is, how relatively easy it is to actually put yourselves into the picture, into the story of of these normal lives. Um, And we're particularly looking at the book of Ruth from um, the aspect of the loving kindness of God. And again, I just felt that really came through in our worship this morning. Um, and just how our lives are, are marked by the presence of God. And we see that in the lives of the people in this story. So I'm going to just quickly recap the story so far. As I said, we're going into chapter three today. So Naomi and her husband, Elimelech, moved from Bethlehem to Moab with their two sons to escape a time of famine. Both sons marry while they're in Moab. And then for reasons which we are not party to, Elimelech and both the sons die before they've produced children, leaving Naomi and her two daughters-in-law widows. And as Yemi explained to us, that meant that they were in a precarious situation. It meant that they didn't have um, property, they didn't have many rights in that society. It was a, a, a crisis situation, really, for them. Naomi then hears that there's been a harvest in Bethlehem, and so she decides to go back. And she tells Ruth and Orpah to return to their mothers Um, which would be a more secure place for them. But Orpah does this, but Ruth clings to Naomi with those words that I think probably we're most familiar with from the book of Ruth. And she declares, where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. So Ruth and Naomi go back to Bethlehem and that's where they're living at the end of chapter two. And they're surviving thanks to the law of gleaning, which was put in place to help Um, widows and the poor, allowing them to gather some leftover grain on the edges of the fields. And she's been gleaning in in a field belonging to a man called Boaz. Chapter three marks the turning point of this story, and we really begin to see God's redemption plan for Ruth and Naomi emerge. And the action in chapter three mostly takes place at the threshing floor. In fact, in my Bible, and maybe in yours too, it's, it's titled Ruth and Boaz at the threshing floor. Now, I'm not an expert in farming by any means, but I thought it might be helpful to have a little look and work out what a threshing floor is. Um, so my understanding is that the threshing floor, it's this flat stone or hard-packed earthen service, which was basically where the, the gathered um, grain was sorted. So it was all sort of like picked from the field and just like not sort of without the use of combine harvesters or modern technology, it was all kind of like brought in and just piled up in in this place. And then it would be threshed, quite often using um, a threshing sledge which was dragged across it. And basically it was to break up the the grain into different pieces. Then when that had been done, they would use wooden pitchforks to lift away the straw and then to toss the remaining... um, sort of bits of the wheat or barley into the air and that's when the chaff would be separated and moved away so it was a really really busy time it was a lot of hard work and it was like the 
that central location, really, where, where it was all going on at that time. So that's just to sort of like give you a little bit of background of where we are. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to go quite slowly through this chapter, and I'm going to make a few observations as we go along. And then I've got three points talking about the loving kindness of God that we'll continue to afterwards. Sorry. Okay, um, so chapter three. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young woman you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And Ruth replied, all that you say, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. So as we said, harvest was a really busy time, so it really was not uncommon for the landowner and his helps to work, feast and sleep all in the same place next to the crops. And also, Boaz sleeping next to his crop actually meant that he could guard his crop from anybody coming to um, steal it. So this meant that Naomi knew exactly where he would be at this time when she suggested that Ruth was to go and pay him a visit. So what is she suggesting that Ruth does? In verse 1, she says, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? So here, Naomi's talking about a future um, security for Ruth, so a permanent home. The inference here is very much marriage that would provide for her. She then goes on to mention, as she did briefly in chapter 2, that Boaz is a close relative of hers, or a kinsman. And it's important to understand what this means, because it actually adds quite a lot of significance to what then she goes on to instruct Ruth to do. So in chapter 2, we were introduced to this law of gleaning, but there was also another law that was in place um, it was a law of kinsman redemption, which basically meant that if a male relative, if a man died, leaving his wife a widow, a close male relative was obligated to provide for this widow in his family in order to provide an heir and preserve the inheritance for further generations of the family. So, this being the context, if we think of what Naomi's actually asked Ruth to do, it, it kind of is understandable if we've raised our eyebrows a little bit because she tells her to go in the middle of the night, uncover this, his feet, lie down, and wait for him to wake up. It doesn't take a lot of reading through the lines here to realise this, this was quite a risky strategy. This is not, this is not something that, as, as a mother of teenage daughters, I'm thinking I'm really going to necessarily be advising them to do. And, and I think it's important for us to actually acknowledge this. This is not something that even culturally would have been seen as something that was normal. It, it was a risky strategy. Um, so she sneaks into the threshing floor at night. She uncovers his feet. I think the meaning there meaning that at some point he will wake up because he's got cold feet. And she lies down. 
Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of real stuff in, the, in this passage. Okay, let's see what happens. Verse 8, at midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. And he said, who are you? Were you with you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Okay, so Ruth actually goes further than Naomi instructs her. Naomi said, lie down and just wait to see what he said. But she, you know, Ruth was, she was a bold, forward woman, ladies, you know. She, she goes straight in and basically says, marry me. Okay. Um, <laughs> There's a lot of imagery in here that, that I, I love because it, you know, it makes it very, very clear. Verse 3, Naomi says to Ruth, Wash therefore and anoint yourself and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. So up to this point, before she says that, we've known Ruth as a widow. So she was probably still in mourning. As I said, the timing suggests that... Um, they were in a point of crisis when these men died, so they needed to move and get this sorted quickly. So it could you know, only have been a really short amount of time. So she was still mourning, probably wearing traditional mourning clothes. And so when Naomi tells her to wash and anoint herself, it's very symbolic of moving from a season of mourning into a new season, preparing herself to step into a new marriage, a new future. And this symbolism continues with the word choice and imagery in verse 9 when it says, spread your wings over your servant. The NIV says, spread the corner of your garment over me since you are a kinsman redeemer. So she is very clearly saying, please will you marry me and will you fulfill your responsibility as a close relative of Naomi's so that the family's inheritance is, is assured. So yeah, I, I, I just, it, it gets me, it's like, wow, this was so bold, this was so brave and courageous of her. You know, and again, she was a Moabite woman proposing to an Israelite man. She was a servant proposing to her master. I can only imagine how her heart must have been pounding at this moment. And not to mention the potential for this to go horribly wrong. She's in the middle of the night, a young woman laying herself at the feet of an older man when we know nobody's around. I think, wow, let's just think how that must have felt, the feelings that are going on. And it, it reminds me of how we feel when we know that God has spoken to us and he's prompted us to step out in faith. There's very much that sense of, oh, I need to do this. I know I need to do this, but it's risky. You know, that could be something like bringing a contribution in a meeting or witnessing to a friend, stepping out in faith, like Jeremy was you know, exhorting us earlier, becoming zealous to step out. If you're gonna be zealous, you're probably not just gonna be casually walking around. It's something that's actually gonna get you there. And Ruth sets us a great example because she doesn't hesitate. She just goes for it. She trusts Naomi and she wants her to benefit from the security that her mother-in-law will inherit if this plan succeeds. So she basically throws herself on the mercy of a potential redeemer with no assurance that he will respond honorably or meet her needs. And it makes me reflect how amazing is it for us that we, when we throw ourselves on the mercy of our redeemer, the Lord Jesus who paid the price for our redemption, we know that he will never take advantage of us. He will always welcome us with open arms. 
back to the story. How does Boaz respond to Ruth's bold proposition? Verse 10. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. Phew. (laughs) What a relief. (laughs) And what a response. Boaz, he doesn't look down on her. He doesn't go, why are you doing this? He, He understands. And he looks at her kindly. You know, he doesn't see her as damaged goods or respond negatively to her boldness and audacity. Rather, he commends her loving kindness and faithfulness to Naomi, and he expresses a willingness to fulfill his responsibility. However, plot twist alert, (laughs) all is not resolved straight away. Boaz also discloses a further complication in verse 12. He says, and now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning, if he will redeem you good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So the complication is that there's actually another male relative who's closer to Naomi than Boaz, who potentially has more of a right or obligation to redeem Ruth than Boaz. And Boaz, as an honourable man, will not step over this man without first speaking to him and making sure that he has no objection. So he basically says, don't worry, I'll sort it out. You know, one way or another, you'll have a husband, but it might be him or it might be this other guy. Go back to sleep and I'll sort it out in the morning. Now, ladies, is that not just such a guy thing to say? Go back to sleep. You know, we'll, we'll sort it out in the morning. <laughs> I'm just like really feeling for Ruth at this point. I was like, she's gone out on a limb. She's done something really risky. Boaz has responded honorably and not rebuked her and sent her away. But the matter is still not resolved. I I just can't imagine that she would have got much more sleep after that. I I know I certainly wouldn't have. (laughs) So let's return to the chapter, verse 14. So Ruth lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another so early in the morning. And Boaz said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. He's protecting her dignity. And he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to him, her mother-in-law, Naomi, who I'm imagining was waiting at the door, watching for her to come back, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? Then Ruth told her all that the man had done for her, saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me. For he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. And she replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Okay, so what I want to do now is to just have a look at three ways that we see God's loving kindness demonstrated through this chapter. And I just wanted very quickly just to, um, just to say what we're talking about here, this word loving kindness. It's one of those words that the Hebrew word is hesed or, or hesed. And it's, it's not a word that has a direct translation. We quite often find that when you're translating texts that there's not necessarily one word that covers everything. And this word chesed is often translated as steadfast love. It's the same word used in, in that verse that we know, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Um, 
the ESV often says loving kindness, and that's what we've used in the title of this series. But it encompasses more than just love. It's very much, it's a fierce love. It's kind, it's loyal, it's faithful, it's patient. Uh, and as again was mentioned this morning, it's, it's, it's a love that comes from God to his people. And yet we also see it shown from one person to another in this text. So my first point, God shows his loving kindness by giving us a guarantee while we wait the while we await the ultimate fulfillment of his promises. At the end of chapter three, Ruth is in a situation that many of us are very familiar with. She's waiting for important news about her future security, but she herself cannot do anything more to directly influence the outcome. She's stepped up, she's stepped out in faith, she's presented her case and Boaz has assured her that he will sort it out, but now she has to wait. Now, in order to reassure her, Boaz has generously given her a deposit of six measures of barley to show the sincerity of his intentions. It's a symbolic gesture, the down payment of what he will provide. It's it's a promise of redemption. And this mirrors the provision that God gave us after Jesus has died and he sent the Holy Spirit to us as a deposit, or if you like, a down payment. 2 Corinthians 1, 21-22 says, And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Like Ruth, we now live in this, um, what we quite often describe as the now and the not yet. So for Ruth, she has the down payment of barley and promise of marriage and redemption to secure future security for herself and Naomi's line. But she hasn't actually received the fulfillment of it. For us, our future security has been secured. We know that we will spend an eternity with Jesus and it's the cross that secured it for that, uh, that for us. But we still have to live out the rest of our earthly lives um, waiting for that day to come. And in the meantime, the gift of the Holy Spirit is like a deposit until God makes good on the balance payment, which we will only receive at the end of our earthly lives when we die and we go into his eternal presence. The Holy Spirit, excuse me, the Holy Spirit's presence is also here to help us while we wait. And we hate waiting, don't we? Who, who here enjoys waiting for something? <laughs> we don't, do we? I read this quote online recently, I can't remember what it was, and I instantly resonated with and then also groaned as it convicted me so much. Let's see if you have the same response. Okay, we see waiting as a problem to solve rather than a discipline to learn. And I was like, oh, so true. So true, isn't it? I, I hate waiting. We hate waiting, don't we? And in our modern day society, there's so many advances in technology and we have these high expectations in terms of customer services and so on. We'll do anything that we can to try and speed up the process. And yet the reality is that actually at times we need to wait. And actually that's for our own good. Often for reasons that only God knows. Quite often... I think, because otherwise we'd rush in and make a mess. I know the times when I'm frustrated and I don't wait, I often make the situation worse by trying to sort stuff out myself. Um, 2 Peter 3.9 reminds us, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness, 
but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but all should reach repentance. So it's not that God is slow to answer. It's rather that we are impatient. We just want answers, don't we? And we want our difficulties and our trials to be swiftly resolved. We sometimes even go as far as to doubt God's goodness when we go through trying times. And yet the uncomfortable reality is that life is often hard, even for Christians. Jesus himself said in John 16, 33, in the word, you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Paul explains to us in 2 Corinthians that there is purpose in the pain. 2 Corinthians 4.17, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So we must remember that life, this life isn't all that there is and the Holy Spirit helps us as we labour through it. Um, but this is the prologue. It's not the beginning and the end of our story. And in the same way as Ruth can look at this deposit of barley and remind herself that Boaz is going to come good, come good on his promise, we have the Holy Spirit to remind us to lift our eyes and to, and to keep going. It just helps us so much in our troubles. Um, which leads me on to my second point. God demonstrates his loving kindness to us by placing us in a far bigger story than just our own. He shows us his loving kindness through his master plan. Now, I think most of us are pretty familiar with Romans 8, verse 28. The ESV says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. The NIV says, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. And I prefer the NRV translation because it shows God as being active. You could read the ESV one as more God is being passive and sitting back and letting our lives pan out in front of him. The emphasis is more on the all things, whereas the NIV puts the emphasis on God who is working in all things. And I just want to encourage us this morning, brothers and sisters, God is actively working in our lives, always. There are these invisible, multiple layers of activity. Sometimes we get a glimpse when he reveals it to us. Sometimes in hindsight, we can look back and we can see where God was working, even though we couldn't see it at the time. Sometimes we never see the fruit in this life, but that doesn't mean that there isn't any. Now, I'm not sure exactly how this happened, but I seem to have become the default photographer in my family when we go on holiday. I think, I think it used to be because I had the best camera on my phone, but I, I, it's just continued for some reason. And when I take photos, I, I am really not the best photographer at all, and I'm guilty of one of two things. The first thing that I do is that I zoom in too closely. My eldest daughter calls it the mum zoom. She's like, oh. Mum, stop doing the mum zoom. Because if I'm taking a picture of one of my delightful children, I want the focus to be on them, not necessarily the surrounding. But apparently, I'm, I zoom in too much. Anyway. <laughs> but the other thing that I uh, am very guilty of doing is when there's like a beautiful landscape or an amazing building or something, I want to get it all in the picture. And I'm forever exclaiming, I just can't capture it. Because no matter how far I zoom out, it's still too, too big in that. And... Um, 
thinking about these different perspectives has really helped me to remember that God also works on different and multiple levels of perspectives at two. The difference is that whilst I can only do one at the time, I can either zoom in or zoom out, he can do both at the same time. He's a God of the zoomed out, as Roman 8 tells us, but he's also a God who zooms right in to the details. Psalm 139, again, we're all familiar with, it talks about us being knitted together in our mother's womb, intricately formed. And before we're even born, it says in your book, were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none. Every single day of your lives was already known by the Father, even before you were born. And I love Psalm 56, verse 8, in the message version. You've kept track of my every toss and turn through the sleepless night. Each tear entered in your ledger, each ache written in your book. Do you see how God is in every detail when we zoom in? In the narrative of Ruth, we see the story from multiple perspectives. The zoomed-in version gives us a very human view of the situation. While some of the customs and the laws of the time are unfamiliar to us, we can relatively easily insert ourselves into the story and imagine how the individuals felt and see similarities with our own stories. Naomi and Ruth know hardship, they know doubt, the agonies of grief, uncertainties and waiting. And they also experience the goodness, the loving kindness, the faithfulness of a God who is in control and who loves them. And yet there's also this zoomed out level where we benefit as we read it because we know that we are on the other side of the cross. We know how this particular story is resolved and we know the significance of it in the much, much bigger picture of God's redemption plan for all mankind. And that, in turn, helps us to look and ponder on the implications for us in our own lives. Because if there is a bigger picture, a wider story going on in the background of the lives of Ruth, Naomi and Boaz, is that also the case for us in 21st century Sidcup? Is there a zoomed out level for our story that we are just unable to see? How often have we had things happen to us that we really didn't understand at the time? But later we can see, if not why it happened, how it actually moved us on to a different place in our story. Sometimes small details which seem insignificant at the time make a big difference to future outcomes. If there hadn't been a famine in Bethlehem, Naomi and Elimelech would not have moved to Boab. If they hadn't, then Ruth would not have married into their family and she would never have married Boaz. The same is true if Ruth's first husband had not died. Sad, difficult times are part of life in a fallen world, but God's is still at work. Now again, these situations, you know, we said, well, why, why does it matter who Ruth married? Why is this significance? But you see, God's plan behind the scenes not only ensured short-term provision and future security for Ruth, but it also placed her in the right place to play her part in God's plan for redemption for all of us, because she was to bear a son in Jesus' family tree. I'm sorry, slight spoiler alert for next week, if you've not read the story before. The son that Ruth bears to Boaz, Obed, is King David's grandfather, and an ancestor of Joseph, Jesus' earthly father. We don't often see the big picture at the time or ever. 
Did Ruth know her involvement in God's plan? There's nothing that suggests that she did. Neither do we. But stories like Ruth's give us hope and grow our faith that he is always working. It's like that song, isn't it? Even if we don't see it, he's working. Even if we don't feel it, he's working. He is the way maker. Ruth and Naomi were vulnerable in many ways, but they didn't succumb to a victim mentality. They took action as they could. And we aren't to be passive, but people who step out in faith. God's more than capable of redirecting us if we make a mistake. He's God. (laughs) We need to be people of action who will take risks for him as Ruth did when she went to Boaz in the middle of the night. And even when we face hardships and trials in life, it doesn't mean that God is absent. Sometimes things don't work out. It didn't work out well for Naomi and her husband moving to Moab. They all died. But God's bigger plan worked out in them and through them. Naomi and Ruth have happy endings in this life, or at least at the end of this particular chapter in their story. We don't have a guarantee of a happy ending in this life, but we have a a promise of a happy ending that will go on and on for generations and generations in eternity. So let's push on forward and let's press on because one day we will be in that place with him where every tear is wiped away, everybody is healed and made whole, everyone healed. Look, and I, I just think we don't think about this enough and just the richness of the fact that that can sustain us in difficult circumstances right now when we lift our eyes and we look up and we recognise that that's where we're heading. The Book of Ruth doesn't give us a step-by-step guide of what to do in difficult circumstances. Rather, it reassures us that we're not labouring in vain, that God cares deeply through his loving kindness. As I said before, we see the bigger picture in Ruth's story because we know not what happens next. Much of the action when you zoom in seems a bit insignificant. But when we see how it all comes together when we all zoom out, so I do want to encourage you now, when things don't make sense in your story, don't give up. Don't give up. Press on. Keep going. Keep pressing forward, believing and trusting that he has a bigger plan and it's for your ultimate good. I just get reminded of that song that we often sing about Psalm 23, All My Life You've Been Faithful. All my life, you've been so, so good. And I just want to encourage us to sometimes take that moment to reflect and look back over our lives and look and see where he has been faithful to us. But I also want to encourage you to be honest. If you look back and you think, Lord, I I don't see it, I don't understand, to bring those things to him because he is the healer. And he's also, I just felt this when I was preparing as well, he's not bound by time. He is present in the past memories, in those difficult circumstances that we don't understand. And he can bring healing in those situations if you bring them to him. Throw yourselves on the mercy and loving kindness of the Redeemer, just as Ruth did. Take comfort from knowing that there is a bigger picture for your ultimate good and for the good and salvation of all mankind. So we've seen how God actively works 
all things together for Ruth and Naomi, both in the smaller details and in the context of his master plan. And my third point is that God shows his loving kindness to us through other people by placing us in a family. You see, Ruth and Naomi are not blood relatives, and yet they've chosen to continue to be mother and daughter. Their relationship begins when Ruth marries Naomi's son, but the obligation actually ended with his death, and if not then, certainly when Naomi gave Ruth the freedom to go back to her family. And yet she insisted on staying, she chose to stay. The two of them choose to continue their relationship as mother-in-law and daughter-in-law. And I just feel this is a picture of our relationships in the church. We're not blood relatives in the sense of natural family. We're not physically related, but we are blood family in the sense that we are bound together by the blood of Jesus, which was shed for each of us as individuals and also for us corporately as the body of Christ. So in that sense, we are family, whether we like it or not. But now we have that choice as to whether or not we choose to further those relationships beyond just circumstantial ones. Or, you know, we can choose to become brother, sister, mother, father, uncle, aunt, any family member that you choose to one another. It's a beautiful, diverse family that we get to be a part of. We're not perfect. We get things wrong. That's family, isn't it? But also, there's no hierarchy in this family because our entry point is the same. We're all equal recipients of his grace. None is greater than the other. And yet, actually, as we read the scriptures, we see that even if there were a hierarchy, it would actually be a topsy-turvy, upside-down one. Because in the eyes of the world, the greatest are the strongest. But the Bible says, blessed are the poor in heart the weak, the unfortunate, the least, the last, the lost are the precious ones in the kingdom of God. So today I want to to challenge you to choose to step up and step out in faith. Who can you be a brother, sister, father or mother to or simply a friend to? You might have had a difficult relationship with your blood family. You might not be in good relationship with them. You might still feel hurt or bereft. But God has grafted you into this family. And here in the family of God, here at New Community, there's a place for everyone. You are welcome, you are valued, you are loved. And there is someone here who needs your love. In the book of Ruth, we see honour, respect and loving kindness demonstrated by all three of the main people, Ruth, Naomi and Boaz. But within this, we see a huge amount of diversity as well. Even within these three people, we see two women respecting and supporting one another, loving each other, each trying to secure security for the other rather than putting their own needs first or feeling threatened by the other's position. We see a wealthy landowner providing for the poor and the widows. He shows love and compassion to Ruth even before he realises he's a kinsman and has a greater obligation to her. We see a younger woman caring for an older woman, an older woman instructing a younger woman about the scriptures and giving her guidance. We see Israelites offering love and care to a refugee from Moab. Make no mistake though, love is costly and you will likely get hurt at some point. It means putting other people's interests and needs above your own and stepping out of your comfort zone and it requires time and effort. But it's what Jesus calls us to do 
And also, if you want to become more zealous in stepping out in terms of your witness, loving your brothers and sisters is a huge witness to unbelievers around us. In John 13, 35, Jesus says, by this people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Let's choose the path of love this morning. Okay, if the band could come up, that would be great. I just would love us to respond this morning. So can I ask you to stand if you are able, please? I just want to ask you some questions and encourage you to respond. Is it time for you to step out of the shadows and into the light? I felt when preparing that that picture of Ruth ceremoniously washing herself and preparing herself to step out from a season of mourning into a new season would speak to some of us this morning. And this is an opportunity for you to do that. Or do you just want to step out in faith and move beyond fear, make a commitment that you will do that thing that God's asked you to do? If you've got that raised heartbeat this morning and you're just sensing that, I just want to challenge you to risk stepping out into faith. Throw yourself on the Redeemer to receive his love and mercy, either for the first time or again. Or maybe it's just in this area of friendship. Have you been hurt in the past and so you've held back from others in this family? God wants to heal you. He just wants to bring healing in these areas. Lord, I just ask that you would just come this morning. Holy Spirit, we thank you for your presence. We thank you that we are not alone, but you are with us. And Holy Spirit, we just ask, would you just come now? Would you come now? Father, would you just flood us with your loving kindness as we worship you again this morning?